Welcome to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and in this special episode of The Peace Frequency, I'm going to take you to Memphis, Tennessee, where on Saturday, April 1st, 2017, I attended the Gandhi King Conference. This is an annual gathering of inspiring and creative peace builders working on the front lines at local, regional, and international levels. I have gone to this conference, I think, six times at this point, and every single time I'm constantly moved and motivated and inspired. So I'm talking about educators, activists, faith leaders, community organizers, artists, and scholars, folks of all types coming together. So I had the opportunity to actually co-create this episode of The Peace Frequency, focusing on their work, their stories, and the theme of the conference, which was No Justice, No Peace. That's K-N-O-W, Justice, K-N-O-W, Peace. So this podcast is broken up into three parts. Part one, we spent some time talking about intersectionality and the identities that we carry with us. So the participants will introduce themselves to you by sharing three identities that they carry with them outside of their profession. In part two, we explored the specific theme of the conference, No Justice, No Peace. Each participant thought about a specific moment in their life where they felt like they really understood the meaning of justice or they really understood the meaning of peace. They interviewed each other. And we had the privilege of having one of those participants, Mama Peaches, share her story with all of us and all of you, our listeners. And in part three, we played an excerpt from a podcast that we did on Martin Luther King Day two years ago, talking about love as the basis of nonviolence. So very appropriate for this Gandhi King conference. So that closes out our podcast. So with that, please enjoy. So we have six individuals here in this room with me now um, at the Gandhi King Conference, um, actually seven individuals now, and we're going to go around and you all are going to introduce yourselves to our listeners. And the questions that you all are going to, I would like you to respond to are, uh, what's your name? Where do you call home? What do you do for a living? And you can interpret that question however you want. And the fourth question is, what are three identities you carry with you other than your profession? And the reason I ask this question is because this idea of intersectionality is increasingly important in peace and conflict and social justice work. Intersectionality, of course, being this acknowledgement that we all carry with us multiple identities. Some of them we carry by choice. Some of them are prescribed to us. And oftentimes these identities intersect with each other. And sometimes they work in concert with one another in powerful, creative ways. Sometimes they clash with one another, creating conflict within ourselves, between ourselves and our communities, and within our communities. So that's why I ask us to think deeply on what are three identities that we carry with us outside of our profession. So we're going to pass this mic around like a talking piece and go around the circle. What's your name? Where do you call home? What do you do for a living? And three identities you carry with you outside of your profession. My name is Sarah Hairston. I do call Memphis, Tennessee my home. 
Um, I am currently studying to get my master's in social work from the University of Memphis, focusing in macro social work, helping to end homelessness, particularly in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, my three identities I carry with myself outside of my student-ness is uh, I'm a feminist, I am a cisgender white woman, and I am queer identified. Hi, I'm Kelly James. Memphis is my home. I grew up here, but I just returned um, three years ago. I'm a sociologist here at CBU who's hosting the conference this year. And my three identities, uh, I grew up poor, but I'm upwardly mobile, so I'm middle class. I'm a Kinsey Five, which means I'm mostly lesbian with a little hetero. And then um, I would say cisgender white woman. Good morning. My name is Karen Spencer McGee. The children in Memphis lovingly call me Mama Peaches. Um, I was born here in 63, and when they merged the schools, I stayed in trouble, so they sent me to Grand Junction, Tennessee. And if you don't know where that is, you have to pump sunlight in there. And I duly believe that Memphis is always going to be my home because every seven years, I come back. I am a teacher by trade, but I had to leave the classroom because I'm always in trouble. I'm always in trouble. I go to the principal's office every day. So when I heard Barack Obama say that we can go into the classroom as long as we don't have our credentials around our neck, we can incorporate what we do. So as a youth minister, I can talk to children that are unchurched, dechurched, and church hurt and show them what their spirit man is telling them. If it bothers you that much, it must be your assignment from God. The three things that I identify with, woman, mother, community activist, and little girl, because I fight like a girl. If there's something on my heart, I fight like a girl to get it done. And Memphis will always be my home. My name is Melissa Turner. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I am a writer and co-founder of Gandhi's Bee Magazine, and my three identities are vegan, environmental, and human rights activist, and there's a lot of intersectionality between the three of those. I'm Ellen Morris Pruitt. I live part-time in New Orleans and part-time in Memphis, but Memphis is home. I'm also a writer, and my three identities would be white Southerner who grew up childhood in Mississippi during the Civil Rights era. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm an advocate for homelessness. Hi. I'm Missy Crutchfield. I am uh, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I kind of like to think of myself as I'm home wherever I am. I travel a lot. I'll be in China. I leave for China tomorrow. I'll be in the Middle East all of May and Peru this summer and then on. So I, wherever I am, I, I try to 
dive deep into culture and see brothers and sisters and kindred spirits and find ways to have a deeper understanding of peace and nonviolence and the fact that we're all connected. But Chattanooga, Tennessee is where I was born and, and I'm currently living there when I'm not other places. I, for a living, I uh, co-founded Gandhi's Bee Magazine and Gandhi Global Center for Peace with Arun Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. And the identities, I wake people up. I, I am an activist. I am a mother in the macro-micro. I, I identify and every morning wake up and think about Mother Earth. One of the talks that we're giving today is Gaia Talks, The Earth Speaks, and I'm always aware and mindful of the fact that she is our greatest mother and we have to live in uh, harmony as best we can or or it'll bite us. So um, my identity as an activist is all about intersections, interconnections, interdependence, and coexistence. Um, and then being a woman. So I, I don't know if that's three. You might have to lump some together to make to make three. My Twitter is Sister Speak Out. So while I'm out around the world and working in the virtual world as well, I'm trying to inspire women because I believe women and that connects with that mother idea. I think women are the are the ones who are going to be leading the, the global change for peace and 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 justice and um, compassion and that the that that will lead the uh, the change that we're praying for and working for. So, um, hello everyone. I'm uh, Dr. Manoj Jain, and uh, Memphis is my home. I've been here 20 years. Uh, I'm a physician by training. I'm an uh, infectious disease doctor, and uh, I'm uh, work in Memphis. My identities are actually quite interesting. One, I'm a writer, so I write regularly for the Washington Post, uh, Huffington Post, and uh, have a regular column in the Commercial Appeal. And uh, I also am a activist. I'm the co-founder of the Gandhi King Conference. We've been doing this for over 14 years, uh, co-chair this year, and we'll continue this. Uh, I'm also a philanthropist. I uh, like to donate uh, money and have for for causes such as uh, tuberculosis. Uh, I have chosen uh, one disease, one place, one goal in one lifetime. So that is one disease is tuberculosis. Uh, one place is my hometown in India, Indore. Uh, one goal is to eliminate TB and in one lifetime. And now on to part two of our podcast, where we interview Mama Peaches. And she shares with us a moment from her life where she felt like she really understood the meaning of justice. The theme of this year's Gandhi King Conference is No Justice, No Peace, cleverly spelled K-N-O-W, Justice, K-N-O-W, Peace. And one thing that we want to explore with you, uh, all of our guests in uh, this podcast 
is your experiences with justice, knowing justice, and your experiences with peace, knowing peace. So we're sitting down with Mama Peaches, and my question to you is, when was there a moment in your life when you felt a deep understanding of what justice means? The first time that I understood it and knew that it was injustice and it needed to be brought out in a way that people could understand it is I was sitting in a meeting at the wrong place but at the right time and I heard a Greek word meaning to fill up. And if you don't study the American or English language and cross-reference it, some of the contracts and policies that are made will have you voting for stuff that you don't know what it is, it's about. And in particular, they were talking about um, privatizing the prisons, in which I knew about the prison pipeline from the school from the fifth grade. I knew that they were putting people of color and poor people in classrooms, tagging them. But it wasn't until the governor said that if you allow us to privatize the Tennessee prisons for $250 million, but you have to guarantee us a 90% occupancy rate. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's legalized slavery. That's human trafficking. So when I went to the biggest circle of people of color to talk to them about it, and it was like, well, it's money for the state. And I'm saying, like, who are they locking up? You know, so making 400 ministers in a room understand that if you don't know justice, then you don't have any peace. Mm. Because if it hits you at a level like that, you have to guarantee us an occupancy rate? Okay, 90%? And who are they locking up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's when I absolutely knew that, you know, that was one of my calls. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue um, this, this interview um, uh, with one of our other interviewers. So make sure you introduce yourself uh, to Mom and Peaches before you ask your question. Good morning. I'm Ellen Pruitt, and I was intrigued when you said that you heard the governor say. Um, where were you um, during I, this moment? Um, well, I was actually uh, supposed to be at a woman's conference, and I went into the wrong building, and by the time I got through Nashville traffic, and the way um, Yahweh God deals with me is I'm always in the wrong place at the right time. So um, by the time I got to that one, it would have been over with. So I just sit in with that. And um, what approximate point in your journey in life was this? How long ago did this happen? When did this happen to you? It was in 2012. And when I went to take it to the um, Ministerial Association, they didn't really want to hear it. So when I um, said no, no, and hail to the no, 
then they listened. Because if a woman of integrity that works with children can reach the no, the no, she's definitely going to reach them when she says hell to the no. So all they went back to tell my minister was she's a cusser. Hello, I'm Kelly James. I met you a little earlier, and I'm really interested in how do you do your work? How do you accomplish bringing these social injustice issues to the forefront to rem- to remedy them? I, I have this thing that I do first. Before I do anything, I ask the Holy Spirit, and I do a libation, mm-hmm. and ask the elders who's already did this to come in and lead and guide me. And by the time I do the libation and do the uh, eating clean, and it's one of those things where I, I do, and then he or she tells me, okay, that's your assignment today. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Sarah again. And as a younger Memphian and a newer activist, and especially um, as a white woman, can you tell me what the status is of the privatization of Tennessee prisons? Well, as you know, they're, they're privatized. And if you have uh, people that um, are in your circle and you, they need someone to do the um, sheets and you got need somebody that's going to do the uniform, it's a circle. And that 1% is getting it all. Mama Peaches. Hi. I'm Missy Crutchfield, Gandhi's Bee Magazine. Yes, ma'am. I know your work can be very uh, risky in some ways. You're putting yourself literally and figuratively on the front line for others, for justice, social justice, to know with the K and OW peace and know justice. And often you put yourself in uh, situations where you could be incarcerated personally. I wanted to know if that's happened, when it happened, where it happened, and what did you feel? Um, when I was in Jackson, Tennessee, I actually got exiled back home this time. Um, I sued a judge for a dollar and a public apology because he called me a girl. Now, if I've given birth nine times, there's nothing girl about me. So I told him, I've given birth nine times. How tall the girls grow where you come from? And so the audience started laughing. Well, the courtroom started laughing, and he tried to make me apologize. So he gave me um, three days in jail and $1,500. So when I got out of jail, that was the problem. Because when I went back to court, he sent me to go and see a psychiatrist. And I told him, I already see three psychiatrists, and I got God. You know, so at that point, he sent me back to jail. And I told him, I said, you know what, I sure do, ex- I love that rest that I got. But do you know how many neck bones I could have bought with $1,500? So humor is a good thing to use. So Mama Peaches, one last question. Earlier, when you introduced yourself, you said you identified as a little girl. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested to hear how in this particular moment you channeled that power of the little girl 
when you when you saw this happening? Well, I was molested and raped at four to fourteen, and I said to the little girl inside me, "Your voice was stolen." And after uh, I went through spiritual gift healing and found out what it was that the demon or the adversary didn't want me to do, I made a commitment that I would fight like the little girl that couldn't fight when she didn't have any power. So one of the things that I had promised, um, I went into a, after a bad car accident, I went into a coma, and the elders were actually speaking to me. And I made a promise to God that I didn't want no money, I don't want a house, I can live in a tent. That if he would show me the way to heal other girls, that I would live for him. So if you're 37 or below, I'm Mama Peaches, and you can call me Peaches if you're my age, because we had elders. When we walked in a room, they smiled at us. Today's climate has people so bogged down with 45 and, you know, they forget about the youth. And if the youth don't see us pouring into them, something as simple as, good morning, beautiful, to a little girl, and smile, gives her a buildup. And if I see a darker, darker-skinned woman, Sandra Bland broke my heart. And after reading her story and some of the stories surrounded uh, about social justice, if they're healing, you can't help until you heal. So my piece with Black Lives Matter Memphis here uh, in the conference, I teach them how to you know, let it go and move forward because at the end of the day, it's not about you. It happened to you, but it's not about you. It's about the ones that don't have a mother, uh, Aunt Susie, a TT, or Mama Peaches. So that's what keeps me, me uh, moving. And when I say I fight like a girl, have you ever been in a fight with a girl? Ooh, my mama had 13 children, and there were two boys over me and two boys under me. Four girls, well, three girls, and I mean, I'm number seven coming and going. You know, that means seven is the number of completion, fullness, jubilee. I have middle child syndrome for real. I couldn't grow up and I couldn't stay a child, so I'm right there in the middle. So that inner child in me is always wanting, always wanting, and she's never full. So I tap into that little girl. She keeps me young. I know all the hip-hop songs. I can get out there and break dance with the children, but I can also waltz with my elders. So it's important that every part of your life, you tap into it so you'll remember what it was like when you were a teen and not to look at the teenagers and go, mm, with a smile and say, okay, where is that coming from? So you'll better understand it. Mm. Well, I'm 35, so I'm going to call you Mama Peach. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I want to thank you for, for sharing this uh, with us, particularly because, and didn't mention this at the beginning of the podcast, but standing, sitting uh, next to me, on me, is my five-year-old daughter. Um, so to hear this story um, is uh, incredibly powerful, given the context in which uh, we're hearing it. So thank you, Mama Peaches. Oh, you're more than welcome, Darren. Hey, beautiful. 
finally part three of our podcast, we have our closing circle. We listened to an excerpt from an interview we did with Kazu Haga talking about love being the foundation of nonviolence. And our final go around, every participant talks about how they respond to and think about this excerpt. And when I say love, I'm talking about um, the Greek word agape. Um, in Greek, they have about five different words for love. And, and I think it's important that we make the distinctions because in the English language, you know, we have this one word love that people use to reference a lot of different things. So, you know, in English, I can love my girlfriend, I can love my mother, I can love my friends. I can also love a cheeseburger or a great slice of pizza. <laughs> and it's the same word, but they're very different concepts. And I think because of that, when we talk about love in the context of nonviolence, people oftentimes uh, misunderstand what we're talking about as it being something weak and sentimental and emotional and not and something devoid of power. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King once said that that uh, power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. And I think oftentimes when we think of concepts like nonviolence and when we think of concepts like love, we forget that love can be an incredibly aggressive and militant force used for resistance um, and not just this weak and sentimental kumbaya type of thing that I think um, oftentimes even Dr. King's own legacy gets watered down to that. And so I think it's really important that we remember that true nonviolence comes when we are able to create movements that are powerful, but are grounded in love. Um, you look at a lot of what's happening today in, in our society, and you look at the Black Lives Matters movement, and it's an incredibly powerful movement that is grounded, um, you know, with the with the with the black leadership that is leading it, and a power and, and a love for their people. And I think that's what is motivating people into the streets. Um, I think people are incredibly angry about all of the police killings every 28 hours. There's a lot of righteous indignation there that we need to continue to cultivate. But at the end of the day, I think it's important in nonviolent movements that we're constantly reminding ourselves that even that anger, we're angry because we love the people that are being harmed by injustice. And so I think, you know, once you lose sight of that love and you start focusing solely on power, it can become a reckless and abusive force but once you lose sight of the power and you focus only on the love, then it becomes weak and sentimental and emotional. And so I think it's always important that we remember um, that the true power when you can combine the forces of agape love and, and people power. We just heard an excerpt from an interview we did with Kazu Haga from the East Point Peace Academy a couple years ago on MLK Day when he talks about this concept of agape and the role of love as the basis for nonviolence. So we're asking um, each other one of these two questions um, to close out the podcast. When has your anger come from a place of love? You know, Kazu talks about how we are angry because uh, the people that we love or the community that we love is being oppressed or hurt. So that anger is actually coming from a place of love. Second question we're thinking about after hearing this excerpt is, when have you channeled your love into a form of power? Love is a form of power. That's what nonviolence teaches us. That's what King and Gandhi and others have taught us, that love is not sentimental and anemic, but is actually a powerful force. So 
Those of you in the room with me, you can answer one of these two questions to bring our podcast to a close. And again, just say your name into the mic so we know who's who's talking. Uh, I'm Sarah, and I think of a specific example of when my anger came from a place of love. I lived in Chicago for three years, and as part of that time, I worked at a low-threshold youth shelter. Um, One night, I was out with my kids on a smoke break, and we were in a neighborhood that was populated by pretty much white, upper-class people, um, and a person on the street attacked one of my kids um, verbally, and she reacted. And I remember the police showed up. I got in a confrontation with the officer because he said there was nothing we could do because it was a gender slur and not a racial slur. And I remember being so angry because there was no point for this woman to have gotten into this fight simply because she um, looked different than this man. Uh, I'm Kelly, and I remember going to visit my mom in jail. She served three years down at 201 Poplar. And if you're from Memphis, we don't call it the jail. We all know the address. It's 201 Poplar. And uh, she was in the orange jumpsuit they give you, the scrubs, and we were in the cubicle. And and um, she's a large woman like myself, and, and she had on a scrub that was too tight for her. And I said, Mom, why are you wearing that? Why don't you get a bigger one? And she said, well, all the other girls like the big ones, and they got there first, so I only have to wear this a few more days. And I remember being so angry. And that was one of my first tastes of how the prison system dehumanizes you in so many ways, these constant microaggressions. And... um, I felt powerless, but I've used that experience of watching what my mom and other loved ones have gone through to to love others and and try to help teach um, about the correctional system and uh, maybe inspire people to to work in that area. Hello, this is Mama Peaches. April thirteenth, ninety six. My sister's husband killed her. And she- he um, staged it like a car accident. He had two um, $500,000 policies. And if it doubles, it was an accident. It doubles. That's $2 million. And then June the 10th, same year, my other sister's married to a CME preacher. She's walking out the door. Her three- and six-year-old was sitting right there. He shot her in the back. Killed her and the baby right there. Yeah, he was having an affair under the CME doctrine. If you um, are abusive or she leaves you, then you, you're you out. And then June 29, 2006, and here in Memphis, my sister's on-again, off-again boyfriend hit her with a car and ran over her repeatedly and drug her three blocks. Everybody knows who Lacey Peterson is. But you did not know who Linda Taylor Thomas is. Sandra was killed in uh, Parsons, Tennessee. And the insurance company was out of Atlanta. And so we wanted uh, to exhume the body because the insurance company said that the death didn't coincide with the injuries in the wreck. But we couldn't get that. But Holly Bobo, they didn't even have her body, and they had a $10,000, you know. So you know where I'm going with this? Justice for my white 
now we're saying Becky with the good hair because Beyonce said that. But justice with so the love of women and the is, is what really with my domestic violence ministry. Now I even know why I'm here because I went on a rant on Facebook and it got two thousand hits in less than. Um, six hours, and my niece said, why don't you get a show to talk about this? So I was like, I don't want to be brought to the 21st century. I don't want all that electronic stuff. So when I think about it and how I reach people and I keep it real, you know, sometimes I have to pray, God, please don't let me curse in this church house today. Because sometimes when you use strong words of expression, and people know you to be a peaceful person. So, okay, mom, he's mad about something. It's time for us to wake up. So, you know, that love power, when you don't want anything, but for people to heal and have a decent life, it will pull you to just love. And when they got hell in them, sometimes you can love the hell out of them. My name's Blake. Uh, what's on my mind is um, something from this morning where I channeled Barack Obama's love into a form of power. Um, I teach a GED class in the women's jail on Saturday mornings, and we always choose a selection that we read out loud as a community and then answer some GED-type questions about and they had asked to read Barack Obama's um, inaugural address from 2009. And I try to pick hopeful things. His speech was certainly hopeful, but in, in the current times, I was ambivalent. And when I read it, I was overwhelmed by how much love permeated that speech and its emphasis on the power of we the people. And I think that that power speaks speaks now even even when we're in a different time and under a different administration I'm Melissa Turner with Gandhi's Bee Magazine and we've been covering the Free Gaza movement over the last few years and we were in Washington D.C. for the Free Gaza March with Answer Coalition last weekend and I think for the first time um, in the last few years of participating in these marches, I've felt a personal sense of an unfolding of anger into love. Um, as uh, this year, there's such a swell of support. Um, and you saw the Free Gaza movement, the Palestinians there. You saw the Black Lives Matter movement joining in solidarity. And you saw the Rabbis for Peace and the Young Jewish and Proud movement um, and there's just this overwhelming sense of love, and we are one in this together, that it's not us against them, that we all have to find a way out of this together. It was so powerful. I'm um, Ellen Pruitt, and for eight years I facilitated a writing group of men and women who were experiencing homelessness. And one of our writers, the afternoon after writing group, I was accused unjustly of a crime. I am crazy about this writer. He is one of my favorite writers of all times of those eight years. And my love for him led me to be involved for a year and a half in his process through the Shelby County prison system. I thought 
I can do this. I'm educated. I'm a former lawyer. I'm white. I'm well off. I can wrap that into a bundle and go to bat for him. As it turned out, my power really lay in never quitting calling, never quitting going to church, to the church, to court, never giving up asking and re-asking, why are you doing this? When is the next thing going to happen? The power turned out to be the most simple of things, which was just eyes. Missy Crutchfield, Gandhi's Bee Magazine. I remember when I became aware of how Mahatma Gandhi transformed his experience and the racism and the things that he encountered um, in India into a powerful form of nonviolent action to to get independence for India. And that was about his love of, of humanity and his love of his home. And uh, and just his love and compassion, uh, but he took that anger and transformed it into change. And Arun Gandhi, we are lucky enough to get to work with his grandson, Arun Gandhi, tells these stories, and he talks about anger being uh, a, a force of, uh, to, of, of energy like lightning, and you can take that lightning and use it for change, for good. And I realized that that's what I was doing with the, the love and the compassion that I have when I volunteer with kids to help kids in alternative school think about choices and consequences and amazing intellect and the gifts and the talents that they have and to use them for good and for success and for greatness and to connect to each other and lift each other up, just like I do being a, a vegan activist and talking about the planet and climate change connected with meat consumption. And that consumption is killing your body. It's killing the planet. It's creating the violence. It's feeding everything. We can't disconnect from these things. We have to realize our interdependence, our interconnectivity, that the violence that we think translates into violence in society against each other in our home, in our community. So all of that energy, as Arun says, and Mahatma Gandhi's life exemplified through the anger and needing for change, for justice, real justice, and peace and compassion, nonviolence. Through nonviolence means... um, that's that channel process, and uh, it works. Well, thank you to all of you for spending this time with us and co-creating this episode of The Peace Frequency. You truly are amazing, creative, inspiring people. This is my seventh time coming to the Gandhi King Conference. I see some familiar faces, but this is why I return every single year. One, the city is great, and it's filled with folks who are dedicated to social justice issues and doing it on a day-by-day basis. And this is where those stories are really revealed. So I thank you for that. Um, And uh, we're going to get this up so more people can hear it.